it's true. You have to kind of believe in yourself and in the value of what you have to say and just commit to doing it. Would your book, program, product, or organization be of interest to the other listeners of Fierce Woman Writing? Advertise on the show and reach smart, creative people who love writing in books, just like you. For more info, there's links in the show notes to the contact page of my website or slide into my DMs on Instagram. Welcome to Fierce Women Writing, the podcast where female voices are elevated, creativity is ignited, and writers are inspired. I believe that stories can enlighten, heal, and entertain the reader and the writer. First, the writer has to quiet their doubts long enough to get the words on the page. I'm here to help you put your doubts away and focus on your creativity. Every day I talk to writers and would-be writers who aren't writing. They're not writing because they don't think they're good enough, because they've been rejected, don't have time, or don't know where to start. That's why I created this show so that you can hear from other writers who want to inspire you to share the stories that only you can tell. I'm Sarah Gallagher. Come write with me. Hey there, Fierce Writers. Today's guest is Christina Hammonds-Reed. Christina Hammonds-Reed holds an MFA from the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. A native of the Los Angeles area, her work has previously appeared in the Santa Monica Review and One Teen Story. The Black Kids is her first novel. Welcome to the show, Christina. Hi, Sarah. It's lovely to meet you. Christina, what are the ideal conditions for you to write? Yeah, I actually really love writing in coffee shops. I know it's such a cliche, but for me, because I'm sometimes a little ADD about things, I like having the stimulation of having other people nearby and getting to listen into their conversations and sort of having that relationship with your local barista. Um, So it's one of the things I've actually really been missing in quarantine is just not having that experience. I find it a little hard to concentrate at home, but we make do, right? Yeah, we do. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you write? It's a good question. I don't know how not to. I feel like I've been doing it my entire life. Um, I was very fortunate to have parents who were super focused on education. My mom's actually an educator. And we always had books around the house. I remember reading from just a very, very early age. And I remember writing from a very, very early age. It was one of those things where it just felt like a natural way to express myself. And I was kind of a shy kid growing up. Um, So for me, it just seemed like a way to be my fullest self in some ways, if that makes any sense. So I did it through elementary school, obviously, junior high, high school, and I got to college. And when I was in college, um, initially, I applied as pre-med because I think in certain communities, there's this idea that ambitious kids go into like law or medicine or engineering. Um, And especially because I think black and brown parents want their kids to do something that's very stable. Um, But I went in and realized it was so not for me and promptly switched to creative writing and political science as my majors instead. And I think that's sort of the beginning of how this came to be. What are your best writing tips? One of the best tips I've 
ever received, and it sounds super duper simple, is just to do it. Like I met a young man when I was on a train trip to Portland, actually, and he'd written a novel. And I was just like, wow, how did you do that? And he's like, I just did it. And at the time, I was like, well, you're kind of arrogant, but it's true. You have to kind of believe in yourself and in the value of what you have to say and just commit to doing it and not second guess yourself. And I think that's obviously easier said than done sometimes, but it really is just empowering yourself to say that you have something worthwhile to share with the world or a perspective that's different than what's out there. So just doing it, I think is a huge writing tip. Another tip is to read and listen and watch as much as you can, because it's only going to make you a better writer. And it's not just novels. It's not just nonfiction. Like I really do think songwriting is super important and watching TV and movies is super important and plays um, and dance. So I think imbibing as much as you can is also just really great for writing. What are your suggestions for someone trying to overcome a block? I think the thing I actually do the most is nap. (laughs) I will, I mean, I I have pretty bad anxiety sometimes. And so I kind of spaz out and I'm just like, what am I doing? I'm not any good at this. Why am I doing this? And just the power of napping, like taking a nap and just turning off that part of your brain and also not being afraid to just step away from it for a little bit. Like, I guess it depends on what kind of writer you are. Some writers like have to look at the page for a certain amount of time every day. I personally, if I'm not feeling it, will take the time to step away from it for a few days or a week or even two weeks and just allow myself the space to like think about it from a different perspective. What about editing and revising tips? It's so hard, right? <laughs> the the editing and the revising is like both the fun and the torture of writing because I, I, I really love the reconstructing of certain things and seeing how it comes together. But I think first you have to be okay with that whole killing your darlings phrase. Um, and sometimes it takes a point to get there. And I think that's where stepping back can be helpful, where if you take time away from it, when you come back, it's a little easier to say, hey, wait, maybe I don't need this. Or, hey, wait, maybe as much as I love this character, he or she isn't actually, or they are not serving the story. Um, So time and space, but also really giving your manuscript to people you trust. I think if you have some people whose opinions you really respect, when they come back to you with certain um, things that maybe they're not responding to, you're like, okay, if this person isn't responding to this, it's not necessarily about making the change that they say to make. It's about seeing what it is that isn't working that they're thinking you need to change, if that makes any sense. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not always about saying, hey, this person thinks I should completely take out the scene. It's why isn't the scene working so that this person thinks I need to take out the scene? And then just sort of figuring out how to do that most effectively. And sometimes it is taking out the scene and other times it's just something where it's like, okay, if I tweak this, it actually does serve the purpose I intended it to serve. Can you estimate your submission to publication ratio? My particular submission to publication ratio is 
I think super duper fortunate overall. I, I know it's not the norm, but I, I definitely wrote and submitted short stories um, over the course of the last 10 years even. Um, and the first short story I submitted out, out of college, it was literally like a year or so out of college, was accepted into the Santa Monica Review. And I think that sort of spoiled me because I was like, oh, okay, that's easy. Um, but obviously it wasn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> after that, it was definitely, I'd like, okay, maybe I've graduated. I'm going to submit it to the New Yorker. And it's like, oh, wait, no, never mind. That's not happening. So I don't know that I have the most accurate, also because I didn't go to an MFA in creative writing program. So my experience has been overall more in screenwriting. Um but with the book publication, I think my agent went out to all of the major publishers. He's very good about shielding me from the rejection, which is thankful. I'm thankful to him for because mm. uh, I didn't need that anxiety in my life. Um, but I, I think it was pretty well received overall. I know a few people said no because they thought it was a little bit more adult than YA or Ashley's voice was a little less warm, maybe than they would have preferred for a YA novel. So um, for the most part, I think I've been shielded from a lot of it. And we sent it out, I want to say, in February or March, and it was accepted for publication in April. So nice. I got lucky. Uh, yeah, I know it's not normal. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I just got very, very, very lucky. And I think also I was fortunate to be going out with the book in a moment where publishers are really trying to seek out diverse voices and diverse perspectives. And I feel like had I tried to go out with this particular book, like even seven years ago, it would have been a completely different story. How did you meet your agent? So I actually met him through the short story that would become The Black Kids because I had that short story published in one teen story. He read it and reached out to me. Um, and he was among the few people who did, but he and I actually were able to meet up for coffee and we just were able to talk to each other. And I, I felt like he really understood what I was trying to do and my voice and had um, a vision for what it was that I could do moving forward. And he was actually the one who was like, have you thought about writing this as a full length novel? And at first I was like, eh, oh no, I kind of wrote it as a short story. It's done. But then I started to really think in more detail about what kind of world building could be done and how to elaborate on her story and how to include more of the city and the people who make Los Angeles um, this really diverse, vibrant, and complicated place sometimes. So hats off to him for, for seeing the potential in it and, and for encouraging me to think harder about it. But he's absolutely lovely. I love him to death. His name is David Dorr at Abrams Artist Agency. That makes me curious about how your experience screenwriting influenced writing this YA novel. I think because I went to film school and I worked as a screenwriter for a little bit, I guess still technically. Screenwriting is very, obviously it's a different beast than novel writing. And there's a lot of um, plotting that goes on. And it's all about how exterior action is communicating the interior versus novel writing is very much focused on the interior more often than not. 
but I think it was great to be able to blend the two together. And also, I really think one of the biggest things was like screenwriting is so much about outlining and having these very concrete beats. Um, and this is like the inciting incident, and this is the end of the first act, and this is sort of the rising tension of this act. Um, so all of those very sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Seems structured. Yes. All those very structured things that you put into screenwriting, for me, were actually really helpful in writing a first book, because otherwise the task is so daunting. But because I had that background of knowing that, like, okay, this happens here, this happens here, it was much easier to get a draft down than I think it otherwise would have been. But then it's also good to know when to, like, chuck that out the window. So I think it helped for getting the first draft down and then from there just sort of shaping the rising action and the different sequences as I felt like they needed to be as opposed to sort of having those arbitrary things in there. Who are some other women writers we should be reading right now? I really, really, really love Jasmine Ward. Anything she writes, I will read. I think her writing is super powerful and thoughtful and really engages in uh, very meaningful ways around issues of race and identity um, and Blackness in America. And her writing is also just really beautiful. I also really love Leila Lalami. I think what she did with the Moore's account is absolutely bonkers. She like takes this one sentence from this historical document and creates this really, really vivid world around it. And it's, it's super beautiful. Um, and uh, I think the imagination it takes to do something like that, where you just start with this little itty bitty thing and create this whole really rich novel around it super inspiring to me. Rebecca Mackay with The Great Believers, I think she does something beautiful there, connecting art and the AIDS crisis and PTSD and just what it means to love and be human in the time of crisis. So I like, I tend to really respond to women who are engaging in questions of identity and uh, complicated relationships, but also the political. And I think that's kind of where my poli-sci background comes into play. I, I think that engaging with the world around us and also using history um, to reflect the present is really interesting to me in different works. And where can listeners find you online? I am on Instagram at, at Christina Hammonds Reed. Christina, would you read some of your work for us now? Sure. I'm going to read chapter five of The Black Kids. Lucia and I stand in line at Western Union behind a balding Russian man with really long ear hair like my old piano teacher. Save for the television in the corner, it's quiet, eerily so, and I try to keep my feet perfectly still so my sneakers won't squeak on the linoleum. Sometimes when I have to pee really badly or when I can't make a sound, I pretend that I'm a runaway slave and I have to be very still or else I'll be discovered. It's fucked up, but it works. Usually this place is a swirl of tongues and transactions, like waiting at the airport, but without any of the excitement of going somewhere. There's always some baby fussing while some mom screams, get down from there, at some kid, which pretty much sounds the same in any language. Today, it's just me, Lucia, and the bald man. Together we watch as a crowd pulls a white man from his truck and begins to beat the shit out of him. His long, blonde hair swings from side to side as he staggers, disoriented with each blow. In a different world, he'd be a lead guitarist rocking out, not a broken construction worker, tumbling. 
A man flashes gang signs at the helicopters hovering above. They're not even 10 miles away, but it might as well be a whole different country. There are my fancy school and my fancy neighborhood, and then there's this. The television flickers and fragments across the Russian's head as he shakes it. He turns to look at me angrily. See, he says. Lucia places her body between the two of us. No hablar con él, she says. The man returns to the screen. Lucia speaks to me in Spanish when she doesn't want white people to easily understand what we're talking about. She taught me when I was younger, and then as soon as we got a chance to study languages in school, I chose Spanish. And anyway, it's LA. If you even half pay attention to the city around you, you'll learn it by osmosis. It's not like it's a secret language, but it's easier for her and easy enough for me. I'm sure to everyone looking at us, we're an odd pair, a lanky black teenager and a tiny Guatemalan always together. Lucia's favorite cashier is Jose. If he's working, everything goes smoothly, and they joke and laugh in Spanish about how he's going to marry her. When she's done, she kisses her fingertips and places them on the envelope before sliding it across the counter, where Jose converts it into a textbook for Umberto, guitar lessons for Roberto. Today, Jose isn't in a joking mood. El mundo en que vivimos, Jose sighs. His eyes are fixed on the television screen, where the news shows images of a man slamming a slab of concrete down on the truck driver's head. See, si, Lucia says. Jose's hair is the dark of an oil slick at night. He's younger than Lucia and Mexican, not Guatemalan. He lives with his cousin and abuelita in a small house in Highland Park with three bedrooms and a bathroom. And if you climb up on his roof, you can see the city on a clear day. He sounded like a real estate agent when he told this to Lucia. I'm going to own my own business, he said last week, a declaration of intent. Doing what, she said. He wants to own one of those places downtown where they sell Cobia San Marcos and clothing and keychains and Coca-Cola and glass bottles. The San Marcos blankets are super plush and have different designs on them, like cute kittens and majestic lions and strawberry shortcake and the Dodgers. A few weeks ago, Lucia took me downtown and had me pick one out. The air downtown is always the color of a nasty loogie, but I like the buildings because they've got character. The same could be said for the blankets. The one I chose had a tiger on it, lounging like a queen. You take it with you when you go to college, Lucia said, and it was like she was preparing both of us for goodbye. I wish I could take you with me to college, I joked, and we laughed, but then I felt kind of bad because it made Lucia, it made it seem like Lucia was my personal servant. When I was younger and had a nightmare, I would walk downstairs to Lucia's room and crawl into bed with her, and she would tell me stories about her boys and her country and the handsome but very bad man-devil she divorced before she ran to the United States. He did unforgivable things, she said, for what he thought were the right reasons. She used to think so, too, until she didn't. And so he became the villain in my bedtime stories. Tell me about Arturo, who lives in the house by the bridge, I'd say. Jose is not like Arturo, I say to Lucia. Jose is a good man. What's a good man, Lucia sighs. They're all good until they're not. But I see the way she looks at Jose, like maybe she'd like to sell Cobias some clothing and knickknacks and coke and glass bottles with him. Like maybe she could sit up on his roof, cuddle up in a blanket, and watch the fireworks over Dodger Stadium. I can see her dreaming up their life together, deciding maybe they could be good. I wonder if she's going to tell him today that she's leaving soon. Although I try not to watch, my gaze finds its way back to the television screen. The truck driver lies on the ground in a halo of his own blood and hair. Nobody goes to help him. The police are nowhere to be found. Some man walks up, take the, takes the wallet right from the truck driver's pocket and runs off. Finally, the truck driver gets to his knees and another man comes up almost out of nowhere and appears to kick him in the head. I feel myself wince. Go out with me, Jose says. It's the first time he said it for real and not just as a joke. 
On the television, the man drags himself into his truck and tries to drive away. The people at the intersection continue to throw anger at passing cars. From up above, it looks like somewhere I've driven through a thousand times, but also somewhere I've never been. I bet my dad would know where it is. Okay, Lucia says softly to Jose. And I look over at her because she's going home to Guatemala, and what's even the point of going on a date when you're going to leave? But maybe that bloody truck driver made her forget, or maybe he reminded her why she left. Or maybe being around Jose makes her think like she might want to stick around a little bit longer. Jose completes the rest of the transaction in silence. On our way home, as we cross the street, Lucia reaches for my hand like she used to when I was little. And even though I haven't done so in a long time, I hold it. By the time we get home, the city is burning. The buildings are stripped bare, and the people yank the guts through their skeletons. Lucia hands me a small envelope. The cats have said it was accidentally delivered to them, and they kept forgetting to bring it over. You open it, I say. My heart feels like it's going to fall right out my chest and splat on the kitchen floor. It's your future, Miha. The envelope says my future's been waitlisted. I want to cry. I'm in at other schools, really good schools even, but Stanford is the school I want to go to. Close to home, but far enough away to be some other me. Somewhere I can briefly stop being a sister and a daughter, but only hours flight away in case Joe needs me. I don't know for what exactly, maybe in case her broken brain delivers a rough uppercut and she needs me to pull her up, squirt some water in her mouth, ice her bruises, and tell her to keep fighting. I need to be somewhere I can still feel the ocean, my ocean, in my hair and skin. I'm convinced Stanford is the only place I'll thrive. I want to throw up. I want to disappear. I want to crawl into a hole with embarrassment. I feel all of these things and burn up in their atmosphere as I hurtle down. Lucia pats me on the thigh. Everything will work out all right. Instead of crying, I watch. Up goes a shoe store. Up goes a laundromat. Up goes a TV repair store. Up goes a mattress store. Up goes a liquor store. All of it goes up. My mother calls me from her car phone. It's going to be a while. I'm going to try to take the 101 to the 405 and see if that's better. I'm afraid to get on the 10. My father calls me from his car phone. I'm okay. I'll get there when I get there. It's bad. Really bad. Stay home, okay? Promise you won't try to go out with your friends. Not tonight. I promise. I call Joe from our living room. The phone rings and rings, and I'm afraid she's not there, but she is. Are you okay, I ask? Of course I'm not. It's so wrong. I'm so tired of the shit. They had the goddamn evidence right in front of their faces. It was right there, Ashley. I mean, they don't fucking see us even when they're looking right at us. Usually when Joe goes on about one of her causes, it feels so far away, like she's angry because she knows she should be and not because she actually feels that shit in her kidneys. But this, this feels different. Even I feel it somewhere in my innards, pulsing. You should come home, I say, until everything's blown over. I'm not leaving Harrison here alone, she says. Stupid Harrison, just because he maybe survived tetanus doesn't mean he can save her from everything else. Just bring him here with you. I'm not subjecting him to mom again after what happened at dinner. Is it him you're really concerned about, or you? I say. She doesn't respond. Joe, don't do anything stupid, please. I think of her handcuffed to her high school flagpole, fighting for brown people halfway across the world. She spent her suspension calling our local congressperson. Joe's the kind of person who accidentally would find herself in the middle of somebody else's riot. Dude, what the hell, Ash? The phone clicks, and then my sister's gone. Thank you for sharing your writing and wisdom with us today, Christina. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I really had fun with this. Now it's time for our writing prompt. I suggest setting a timer for six or eight minutes 
putting Christina's prompt at the top of your page, and free writing whatever comes to mind. Remember, the important part is keeping your pen moving. You can always edit later. Right now, we just want to write something new and see what happens. Okay, so the writing prompt is, write about somebody who receives bad personal news in the middle of a national or international upheaval slash catastrophe. Every librarian, teacher, and parent I talk to is looking for YA novels with strong race identity themes right now. Christina Hammond-Reed's book, The Black Kids, is an excellent work in this genre, and it's out now. There's a link in the show notes for you to order The Black Kids from bookshop.org, where you can order from a small independent bookstore. If listening to the podcast has been helpful to your writing practice, become a supporter on my website. With the recurring monthly contribution of as little as $2, you can help me ensure that these interviews continue to happen. I'm Sarah Gallagher, and this is Fierce Women Writing. I'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Until then, keep writing. Become a supporting member of the podcast with a monthly contribution at FierceWomenWriting.com. Get more writing prompts and engage with other writers on our Instagram page at FierceWomenWriting. Remember, women is spelled with an X. You can also help us reach more writers by sharing this episode with a friend and subscribing, downloading, and reviewing the podcast. Thank you for listening.